This is episode 16 of the Next Year Now podcast. Hi, I'm Alec Ross, best-selling author, entrepreneur, and gubernatorial candidate for Maryland. If you want to learn how you can build a thriving community that helps one another, then you need to start listening to the Next Year Now podcast with my friend, Tom Hefner. The three big takeaways around the utility of Post-it Notes is that uh, they, they preserve the anonymity of ideas. Uh, they allow for those ideas to move around. And when those ideas move around, they allow for patterns to form. Welcome to the Next Year Now podcast with Tom Hefner. Tom believes that if you really want to thrive at work and in life, then every day, purposeful habits and practices are vital. The Next Year Now podcast will not only help you identify and integrate these habits into your daily life, but also bring you key insights and lessons from some of the most successful people in their fields. And here is your host, Tom Hefner. Hello, and welcome to the podcast devoted to helping you thrive at work and in life. The topic of habits and practices is always front and center in our discussion, but we also explore how we use these habits and practices to improve our personal development, productivity, creativity, health and well-being, business and entrepreneurship. I hope you're ready to geek out today because our conversation with Tyson Weinert is going to be full of opportunities to learn the ins and outs of creativity and innovation. Tyson is a human-centered designer and program director for Luma, where he and his colleagues help equip organizations and individuals with the capacity to innovate. In our conversation, Tyson and I will be discussing why and how post-it notes, yes, post-it notes, can be so effective at unlocking your creativity, the most effective habits you can adopt to strengthen your creativity muscle, and how that can help your innovation efforts at work and in life. Great book recommendations for exponentially growing your organization's capacity to innovate and create effective policies, and so much more. Tyson Weiner is one of the coolest dudes I know. He's probably lived more lives in his 40 years than all of my friends combined. He works as a human-centered designer and program director at the Luma Institute, where he and his colleagues help organizations develop their own ability and capability to innovate. Before that, Tyson had a 20-year career in the Coast Guard, where he was a helo pilot serving operational tours in California, Hawaii, and uh, oh yeah, in the Queen's Royal Air Force on an exchange program. No big deal, right? He also led the Coast Guard's innovation efforts as the service program manager, and he helped influence the Coast Guard's vision and strategy using the very methods he now teaches. You know, I could go on and on about Tyson, but I'll close with this fun fact. This dude is the real deal when it comes to innovation. He's helped equip individuals and organizations with the tools of innovation. And that includes the former first lady, Michelle Obama. He helped her and her team with the joining forces program. Before we get into our interview, I'd like to give a shout out to a listener who recently gave us a five-star rating and review on iTunes. The reviewer, Jason Fair, says, I feel like I've joined a community of well-being enthusiasts that yearn to design a better lifestyle. Jason, thank you so much for your feedback, and I promise we'll continue to work hard to earn those words of praise. Tyson, my friend, thank you so much for being here today with us, and welcome to the show. Thanks. It's, uh, it's great to be here. <laughs> Look, we have a lot to cover today about creativity and innovation. Absolutely one of my favorite topics. That's why we're here today, for the opportunity to learn from my good friend Tyson. But first, let's get to know him a bit more. Tyson, what was your, what was your childhood like? 
It was pretty cool. I mean, I I'm, I'm think I'm definitely one of the lucky ones. Uh, I had a, had a great family. I'm the youngest of of three. I have two older sisters. I uh, grew up in San Diego, and uh, yeah, fam- family's all still still together. I think we were taught some pretty important important values uh, growing up, and it's nice to be able to to share those values with with my own family now. So nice. I think I in, in in childhood mode, I I definitely had a an early appreciation for. For sarcasm and a uh, and a dry sense of humor, uh, <laughs> dad jokes started started forming at an early age. Uh, but uh, yeah, uh, some, something I'm very very grateful for. So, what were some of your what were some of your hobbies or passions growing up? I loved being outdoors, so uh, especially around the water, in the water, um, surfing, bodyboarding, swimming, uh, water polo, uh, in, anything in and around the water. I was I was game for. Uh, I think I appreciated also uh, that uh, you know my dad worked really hard, but he w- he was always indoors, uh, and I think I just I wanted to find some way that I could have a, a, a successful career, a promising profession that that got me outside. So I was able to do that for a while. Yeah, well, so let's talk about that. You were in the Coast Guard for about twenty years, a significant chunk of which was spent as a helicopter pilot, being outdoors and flying and all that stuff. What was the scariest moment you ever had as a pilot? Uh, which, which one do you select? Um, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's not always like the movies portray it certainly, but, um, I think there's something pretty special about how well the Coast Guard trains and and prepares, uh, it's, it's, uh, you know, crew members of, of, of all specialties, but I'd say the one that, that was kind of the zinger for us was actually, uh, disrupting a, a pirate attack, off the coast of Somalia uh, back in 2009. So, so at the time, uh, we happened to be in a in an unarmed helicopter um, that was flying at the same time that a an armed pirate skiff uh, was was uh, actively shooting at a large uh, cargo vessel. And so, uh, we're we're meant to be the responders. And so, and how, how did you? Respond you uh, to that? Yeah, how did you? I, I I didn't know that story about you. How did you? Um... How did you combat the pirates uh, with being unarmed? Part of it's uh, a creative approach. Uh, part <laughs> of it might be a little bit silly uh, in hindsight, I guess. But uh, you, you have to be like, I'm not trying to, you know, make fun of this, but like, you, you really do have to be creative in these in these kinds of situations. So, so creativity doesn't always manifest itself on a uh, on a on an easel or uh, or, or in a, a recording studio. But it's just this idea that that we knew uh, the orientation of the of the ship that was that was under fire we knew the uh the direction and speed of the pirate's skiff we knew where the sun was uh and in many ways we could use the elements around us uh to to allow the sun to effectively blind the pirates as we uh closed in at a pretty pretty fast speed Mm. um there's uh perhaps uh, some some aspects to the game of chicken um (laughs) although that's that's maybe not the most professional way to describe it but the reality is um our intent was to disrupt the event, uh, and there are a lot of ways to interpret how we might disrupt it. But if we could at least distract the pirates from from uh, their attempt to hijack this this ship, uh, then that was that was a win. So so what we ended up doing was as we got closer and started to uh, create some interesting maneuvers, uh, the pirates were in fact distracted uh, and ended up breaking off the attack on the merchant vessel. Uh, which allowed them to uh, to continue on their way. So so we verified with the vessel that that nobody was hurt. The ship wasn't damaged. They weren't taking on water. Uh, they were they were perhaps uh, uh, scared and and maybe a few uh, 
few battle scars on the ship, but nothing <laughs> that was uh, that was detrimental to their voyage. So they were actually able to continue on in the, in the direction that they wanted to go in. And in the end, we worked with uh, an amazing um, uh, collaborative effort with it, with the coalition, including a, a French um, uh, fixed wing aircraft out of Djibouti in, in the in the U.S. Navy helped out as well. So between the three of us, we we're able to uh, to get the pirates to stop. Uh, we um, learned learned what we needed to learn, and, and in the <laughs> end, we actually we ended up looking after them. We gave them food, water, a, oh, a medical wow. check, make sure they weren't dehydrated. And it was, uh, you know, not the not the kind of story that you hear about the uh, the Merc Alabama or anything like that. It right. was uh, it was a relatively peaceful engagement on the front end and a peaceful departure on the back end. See, stories like that are why my wife won't let me. Uh, co- well, why I haven't been able to convince her that we should sail around the world. But um, maybe that's a discussion for another time. <laughs> that's right. That's right. We'll do a sail plan another day. <laughs> so obviously you've spent a lot of time, that experience, uh, is a good example of this. You've spent a lot of time in a high pressure environment as a pilot. You spent a lot of time in the military and the coast guard, which can be very rigid and inflexible. I mean, when you're in the military like that, your boss is telling you where to go, where and when to eat, when to sleep. How did you go from that world to the, I'll say the wide open world of innovation? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I'm curious to see what uh, what other military members might offer, but I but I would argue that the open uh, or the wide open world of innovation uh, is is alive and well um, from from sailors and soldiers and airmen and uh, coast guard men and women and marines all, all over the world, and and it, it goes to the idea that that you have uh, incredible training, and the training. And resources will will kind of get you where you need to be. But but once you're out in the wild, you have to innovate. You have to have the the skills and resources to to achieve the desired outcome that that you want. Um, and and the circumstances around that outcome are are going to change drastically. Uh, th- these are dynamic environments that they seem uh, interesting on the on the briefing paper at the front end. You certainly have some <laughs> planning meetings around it. Uh, but once you're in the wild, um, we we call it on scene initiative. Uh, but I think that's kind of a, a tactical description of of just having having your service members being innovative out in the field wherever they are. Because because once you're out there, you're going to have to figure out a way to 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 make things better, uh, uh, and you're going to draw upon the uh, the the skills that you've you've learned and and the resources that you have. So in some ways, uh, the job you do now is uh, just a, an evolution of of what you did in the military, um, just doing it maybe uh, for a different set of you know uh, users or stakeholders. Yeah, yeah, I don't think that's much of a stretch to make that connection. And um, uh, and the more that I interact with uh, uh, with service members, and, and still when we we teach them about uh, human centered design and innovation, uh, you you get these stories over and over again. Where I I am quite confident to say that that um, uh, innovation is is alive and 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 the. The, the willingness to be innovative is is uh, is a strong theme through through many of the service members I've had the pleasure of, of getting to know uh, and collaborate with. Um, so we just want to make sure that the the environment in which they they work in when they're not in the wild um, it's actually more when they're when they're uh, confined within their the bureaucratic <laughs> walls of of headquarters buildings and the like uh, where where innovation can start to uh, uh, suffocate perhaps. And so that's, that's an area that we want to want to help them with. So you, you've touched on a little bit of your work with service members, uh, in your current role. Tyson, share if you would more about your job now and your role, you know, what's a, what's a day in the life of Tyson look like and, and what are some of the things you're trying to accomplish? 
Uh, that's a great question. There's there's really no typical day. Uh, uh, the the day can be days can be quite dynamic and, and different from one day to the next. But uh, in the end, my goal uh, is to uh, the, the greater goal is really to uh, increase uh, what we call design literacy or or, or innovation literacy uh, to just help people be more innovative. And we do that uh, through through a company called Luma Institute. Um, so so we are not a consultancy. Uh, we are actually uh, an education number or uh, an education company or, or a catalyst by which we go in to teach people uh, the fundamental skills to be more innovative through human-centered design. So uh, let's let's pull the thread on that a little bit more. One of the questions I get most when I teach or speak about innovation, be it at the University of Maryland or you know where I work at the Applied Physics Lab at John Hopkins. Um, is, you know, okay, what is it and how is that different than creativity? Everybody seems to have a different idea or definition or view on this topic. Tyson, how would you define innovation and how do you see creativity fitting in there? So when I think about innovation, I'm, I'm certainly inspired by, uh, by the, the leadership at Luma Institute and how they frame it. But they, one of my favorite parts about it is they, they just go back to the Latin roots uh, for, for the Latin uh, root of innovation is is innovare. So so it's just the idea to to make new again or to renew, and I think that's a powerful reminder because for a lot of people that are in the camp of oh I'm so tired of hearing the word innovation and it uh, it's just a buzzword it's lost its meaning then then I like to challenge that by saying well let's you know, when you're thinking about innovation what are you thinking about because my concern is that so many people think that it has to be this this brand new, revolutionary, truly disruptive thing to qualify uh, as an innovation. And, and I don't believe that's true. I think that there's an entire spectrum of evolutionary to revolutionary uh, type of innovations that are going to help make, make people's lives better. Um, so if we were to contrast that against, against uh, creativity, um, I guess in its simplest form, creativity is, is the ability to think of something um, Innovation is the ability is is what it's uh, when you're able to bring that that idea or that thought to fruition. So, so I think that uh, anybody that's been to a happy hour recently probably heard a lot of people <laughs> with some some creative solutions, uh, but I wouldn't necessarily call them innovations. Mm. Um, innovations are going to be when they when they actually come to life or, or come to fruition. That's how we manifest those creative ideas in, in real life. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because if we just stay in this uh, in this cloud of creativity, um, we sit there wondering, but not necessarily doing. What role does human-centered design play in innovation, and, and why is that important? Uh, well, we really look at it as a driver for innovation. Some, some pretty powerful data sets out there that describe how organizations want to be more innovative. They just don't know how. Um, they, they see how how companies that are, are more innovative will thrive um, and, and those that uh, discount innovation or, or don't uh, value it um, probably are not going to be around much longer. Um, so, so if you value innovation, but you're kind of scratching your chin wondering how you can be more innovative, um, then human-centered design is a fantastic methodology to answer that how um, and equip people with the necessary skills uh, and methods to bring innovation to life. No, it's so true. It's funny that you, you talk about human-centered design. Even in my son's school, who's, you know, he's in elementary school, uh, they're starting to teach uh, human-centered design methods, you know, brainstorming and prototyping and things like that and busting on things that you're very familiar with and pulling out the post-it notes. Uh, so in some ways, I think, you know, and I know you've said this before, but the, the ability to do math and to read and write right alongside that 
the ability to innovate, the ability to uh, generate new ideas is going to be just as important for, for our kids. Absolutely. I mean, if you go back to the Industrial Revolution, uh, someone's ability to read and write, do basic arithmetic, uh, that affected their trajectory in life. Uh, and so here we are in the 21st century. And given the rate of change, how uh, how we need to be able to adapt to our dynamic environments and then to be able to thrive in them, uh, we must have that ability to be innovative. And so it's pretty excited. Uh, it's pretty exciting to be part of the, uh, the group of people that are that are making that happen. You know, maybe you're sitting there right now listening and thinking, this is all well and good for Tyson and Tom. You know, Tyson's an expert. This is his job. He's paid to be creative and innovative. But that's just not me. I'm not creative. I'm not innovative. You know, if that's what you're thinking, I want you to stop right now. Stop thinking that way. We're all capable of being creative and innovative at work or in life. We just have to build that creative confidence back up. So I want you to pay close attention to this next question I have for Tyson because I promise you, I assure you, it will help you become more creative and ultimately innovative right now. Tyson, you teach the fundamentals of innovation. You teach people the methods of creativity and human-centered design. In your experience, teaching these methods to individuals across organizations, industries, different domains, and even the government, what are the most effective habits and practices we can cultivate to boost our creativity uh, and innovation right now? That's a great question. I think the the shortest way I would answer is I would say that we most of the the barriers uh, or what I call our, our self imposed shackles. These are things that we can take off uh, ourselves. Um, the idea that people are are I can't be innovative because um, it's not my job description. It's not my place. Uh, somebody else does that, or you know. <laughs> Wait, wait for Bob to come back from vacation. Bob always has the good ideas. I can't possibly think of anything for this meeting. Those are all self-imposed restrictions or these shackles. And I think giving yourself the freedom to remove that, uh, you know, that's not an easy, easy charge for people. But if we figure out a safe space um, where they can do that, uh, maybe just a little bit at a time, uh, and then they start to experience what it's like to have these, these moments of, of clarity and creativity and then know what to do about it. Uh, that's a pretty powerful, par- powerful opportunity. And so, uh, you know, as I said, I have these cheesy, cheesy jokes and taglines, but um, I like to say that I've practiced human centered design from, from my house to the white house. And, <laughs> and my house is simply helping my kids with their homework using some of these human centered design methods. Um, at the white house, I was invited to, to support, uh, Michelle Obama with her joining forces program, uh, which was an absolute honor to be able to be a part of, um, and, and see the amazing work that they're, that they're doing there. But it's just this idea that, that from my house to the white house implies that there's this massive spectrum of, of spaces and locations where people can, can start to practice innovation and creativity. Um, why not do it in in uh, in something with your house and just explore something uh, that's in a safe space to help build uh, not only the confidence but the competence. Um, so you want people to be competent uh, in the practice of human centered design as as they explore um, new innovation based opportunities. One of the things I'll offer uh, for for the listeners out there is uh, this idea of you know rapid uh, ideation, right? And uh, a James Altucher, but he's a big fan of your ability to generate ideas. Uh, it's like a muscle, right? And the more you practice it, the stronger it gets. And he, he advises that we keep a notebook uh, with us wherever we go. And he just makes uh, lists, 10 ideas. I think he, he starts with uh, 10, but he'll say, 
you know, if you really want to stretch yourself, come up with 20 ideas. So whatever that problem is that you're trying to solve or topic area that you're interested in, or in my case, um, I'll kind of em- employ my, my kids to help me if I'm trying to come up with a new podcast uh, idea or, or podcast episode idea or interview idea. And we'll just take out post-it notes or I'll have a uh, notebook and just say, hey, let's, let's just see how many ideas we can come up with. So I'm a big fan of just trying to come up with uh, as many ideas as you can. And it doesn't even matter. They don't have to be good ideas, uh, but practicing that at least once a day. What do you think? Yeah, I, I think that's spot on. Getting comfortable with knowing that you're going to produce um, a, a quantity of, of potential solutions before you even look at quality um, is a huge a huge element to uh, warming up and practicing, you know, these, these creative methods or, or innovative methods. And so I think that's, that's part of the shackles, right? Is the, is the idea that like, oh my gosh, whatever I show somebody, it better be perfect. It better be a, a quality um, offering that I'm willing to show somebody else. And like, guess what? <laughs> Let's show somebody some really lousy ideas because of the, of the 30 ideas that I have here. Some of them are gems. Um, some <laughs> of them might be illegal in seven countries. Uh, but the, uh, you know, and, but some of them are, you know, might be very well lousy, but, but I'm okay because once I start giving myself the freedom, uh, to take those shackles off to, to, to widen the spectrum by which I can approach, uh, a, a solution to something, um, is, is incredibly empowering. And then, and then you're kind of hooked <laughs> and then you, and then you're going to be carrying these uh, notebooks around more and more and more. And, and it's fun to see because now it becomes an archive. Now it becomes uh, uh, like a series of, of artifacts of what you were thinking uh, at some point. So, so just the, it, it's a method itself is journaling. Uh, I'm a huge fan of it. Uh, there's a lot of really interesting literature about how journaling can, can affect your, uh, um, uh, your problem solving skills, even during your sleep cycles. Uh, so, so I'm a big fan of journaling. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because it's definitely a, a method, uh, that I, that I recommend to others to, to, to get out there and practice and, uh, Share, share your ideas, even if it's just with yourself. Uh, but, it, but it's so powerful to be able to, uh, to externalize uh, that, that tornado of thoughts that's in your mind um, and put it in some form that, that we can communicate and build from. Yeah, there's just something about putting it down on paper that, to your point, uh, that when you externalize it, you begin to operationalize it and it just changes, it switches something in your brain. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So what are some what are some of the other obstacles? You talked about kind of removing the shackles. What are some of the other obstacles or barriers of being creative or becoming, you know, innovative? Peter, you know, Peter Senge wrote uh, wrote the fifth discipline and that's a it's a book that's certainly uh, been a big influence for me. Um and he talks about these these organizational learning disabilities. Um and and one of them that really stands out is is um this this idea about I am my position. Uh, so, so I, f- I find that so many people, um, uh, just identify with, well, this is, this is my role. This is my job description. Um, I fill out my, my time card every week and it really doesn't have a block for, for being creative or innovative. So I probably shouldn't do that now. And I'm just going to stick to what I'm supposed to do. And, and it, then it just becomes this, this routine, uh, uh, that, that people are stuck in. I find that's a, that's a tremendous obstacle. Mm. Um, another, uh, significant obstacle is around, well, I'm 
I'm, you know, maybe I'm fairly introverted and I don't like going to meetings and, and nominating these kinds of ideas verbally to people because then everyone's going to stare at me and, and that's not very comfortable. So I just don't, I'm just going to keep my mouth shut. I want to get out of this meeting as soon as I can and just press on with my, with my job description. And sometimes um, those people have some of the best ideas. So how do you? Absolutely. I mean, how do we help them overcome that then? You kind of mentioned the uh, one of our favorite tools here is is the beauty of uh, you know whether you call it sticky notes or post-it notes, but but uh, the, the the three big takeaways around the utility of post-it notes is that uh, they they preserve the anonymity of ideas. Uh, they allow for those ideas to move around, and when those ideas move around, they allow for patterns to form. Uh, and when you see those three aspects of sticky notes or post-it notes come to life. Uh, boy, we are, we are off to the races because whatever is written in that sticky note, you know, just that three inch by three inch piece of paper. I don't know your age. I don't know your gender. I don't know who you voted for. I don't know what you had for breakfast. Um, but the idea that there's something pithy, uh, that, that we could build from and it might relate to somebody else's idea. Then the potential is, is, is amazing between, um, who's, you know, who is contributing to, to what this idea might become. And, and, and that's where we get through those barriers, right? So, so whether you're an introvert or an extrovert, if you're the highest ranking or the lowest ranking, it doesn't matter at that point because the weight of the sticky note, uh, is equal. So when we can democratize, um, innovation on that front, that's a huge way to overcome those kinds of challenges. When you think of someone with a high degree of creative confidence or someone that is a strong innovator, what are some of the characteristics that they embody? Well, I think that they are humble. Uh, and I would say that they are, uh, whether we say empathic uh, from the, the cognitive sciences or, or empathetic, uh, but just this idea to, to recognize, you know, I, I'm not going to be judgy straight away. I want to sit there and really study what's going on here and, and how might I better understand what this person's experiencing so then I can relate and, and help them through this. Uh, as opposed to, you know, some people are pretty, pretty quick to judge these days, um, especially if you're dealing with, uh, well, it was 140 characters now, now 280. <laughs> uh, but, <laughs> but there's quite a bit of judgment that can be conveyed in, in 140 characters. Yeah. Uh, and <laughs> yes, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but how might we just take an empathetic viewpoint to, to give ourselves the freedom to explore, study and learn uh, some of the other aspects that might be that might be going on? And then once we want to start to get into solving mode, um, let's accept that we're not going to get it right the first time. So how might we embrace uh, an iterative approach uh, that is rooted in empathy um, so we can design solutions in the service of others? So let's pull the thread on empathy, right? If somebody's hearing this for the first time and they say, okay, I need to be more empathetic, what are some kind of practical ways for us to, to gain more empathy, whether it be, you know, at work or in our personal lives, uh, so that we can be, you know, uh, embody that characteristic uh, more to, to, to boost our creative confidence? Yeah, that's, uh, I mean, that's a powerful question and, and, uh, I'm glad you asked it. And especially, um, you know, kind of a side note, want to, want to give a, uh, congratulations to you and, uh, <laughs> for your, your expanding family. Um, but, but the reason why I bring that up is because I, I often compare empathy with sympathy, um, around a, a woman's ability to, 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 for, for childbirth and, yeah. and, and the idea that like, I will never be able to empathize uh, with a woman who has given birth to a child. Um, I will, I will sympathize as much as I can, but that's just an experience that I, I won't be able to, to get there. 
you know, to, to truly walk a mile in her shoes. Mm-hmm. Um, that's just a, a, a limitation that, that, that men have. Um, <laughs> uh, but, but it doesn't mean that, that, you know, of, of, of any situation, um, that somebody, regardless of their gender or background, anything, um, shouldn't try to experience, uh, as much as they can of somebody else that, that they're, uh, interested in, in solving for or, or making their lives better. And, and I think it's, it's related to something, you know, when we're taught perhaps the golden rule as kids, uh, treat others how you want to be treated. Uh, and then you kind of grow up as an adult and, and maybe you, you discover the platinum rule, which is, which is, uh, treat others how they want to be treated. I think that a lot of people talk about that and, and, and maybe that was some of the, the buzzworthy language uh, uh, over the past couple of decades, but treating somebody how they want to be treated, what does that look like? How will you ever know that unless you are able to develop empathy for, for what they're going through? And, and maybe that's something as simple as, as an introvert communicating with an extrovert, um, recognizing their preferences and then adapting what you want to say and how you want to say it in a manner that's going to be best received uh, from the introvert communicating with the extrovert or vice versa. So just recognizing that if that's so powerful, rather than just treating people how you want to be treated and you want to step it up to the, the platinum rule of treating others how they want to be treated, how might we know that? How might we understand that? And empathy is going to be the key to help us. And I like that. Okay, we've talked a lot about innovation and creativity. What else am I missing about, about this topic area that you think is important for us to know? I think I just I just am asking that that people just place place small bets and just just try it. Uh, I think that that when somebody is intimidated by uh, by creativity or innovation, uh, even just the thought of it or, or somebody saying it um, might create anxiety uh, around it. And and my hope is that the more people are willing to to try these 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 you know place these short bets on on it, little experiments to try and practice creativity skills or, or innovation-based skills or methods, then my hope is that these, these small failures are going to trigger more chuckles uh, than they will uh, <laughs> any, any anxiety. And so I just really want to encourage people, just place those small bets, try something small, um, get that experience to build from, uh, and then you'll be in good shape to continue. Yeah, I always try to look at it from the perspective of my background, obviously, you know, is in engineering, but to me, human-centered design and design thinking it was about, I looked at it as hypothesis testing, right? Because you're just kind of putting out these hypotheses or hypotheses and then you're testing them out. And they could be, could be right, could be wrong. But it takes a little bit of the, of the burden of, or the fear of failure out of it. Because, you know, when you're testing hypotheses, you, you, you're not saying, you know, you're not putting a lot of value and judgment into, into these hypotheses. You're just testing them, right? You're just a scientist. And so that's kind of how I've looked at it. So when you said that, that kind of triggered in my head, I'll yes and that and say, you know, think about them as small bets, think about them as uh, hypothesis testing. Absolutely. Because, you know, so so in the simplest way, when we share uh, the merits of, of human-centered design with other people, um, in two words, we're talking about mindsets and methods. Um, what is your mindset right now? Is your mindset that, that failure is not an option? Um, because I'm pretty sure the, the reason why that expression is so popular is when you're putting a man on the moon. Um, but yeah. here we are talking about a parking policy. So, so let's give ourselves the, re- you know, the freedom to fail here. Um, and so, so going through a mindset that, that can push directly through that failure is not an option to say, you know what? 
failure is an option. And if we fail small and early, we're probably going to be okay. (laughs) And we're probably going to be able to articulate uh, what the actual solution is that much better because we have the experiences of these small failures. Yeah, no, that's a really great point. I know when I teach and then when I practice human-centered design, you know, I've just gotten into the mode that like, look, I know my early ideas are probably going to suck in some way, but I'll learn something along the way, right? Like there's, there is some nugget of goodness in there. There is something of value that I learn. And I just, I just know I have to get those things out of the way to learn what I need to learn to get to the, to the ultimate, you know, iterated solution where I, uh, I find something that does work. Yeah, Absolutely. Look, we're getting close to wrapping up the show, but before we do, I want to segue to one of my favorite parts of the show, and that's where we focus on the topic of books and reading, which, gosh, is is probably one of the best habits we can cultivate. Tyson, think about the books you've really treasured over the years. What are the two or three books that have impacted you the most? Well, one of them I, uh, I already mentioned, uh, uh, Peter Senge, The Fifth Discipline. Mm. Um, it's, it's powerful, if nothing else, because um, he, has, he promotes a systems thinking point of view. Uh, and that's very much how my brain is wired. Uh, that's very much how, how our company <laughs> uh, is wired. Uh, we approach human-centered design uh, as a system, not as a process. Uh, and I think that makes us stand out for the right reasons because not every situation is the same. And so, so to suggest that you're going to go from point A and then when point A is, is complete, then you'll look at point B or, or, or step A, step B, et cetera. Uh, it's pretty nice to have uh, a resource of, of a series of design thinking methods or human centered design methods to pull from and then have the expertise and the competency to recognize which one you want to do use when. Uh, and maybe you even start to, to combine a few of them together into these these little recipes that are going to, they're going to help you out. So, so this notion of a, of a systems thinking approach to life, uh, recognizing the interconnectedness, uh, of different aspects within a complex system, uh, is, is, is profound. And Peter Senge articulates that very well in the fifth discipline. Uh, another book, this is, uh, <laughs> I, I challenge some of, some <laughs> of your other friends that are on your show to, to geek out as, as hard as this one, but, uh, you're never going to see this in any uh, innovation literature, uh, <laughs> but uh, but there's a policy uh, influencer named Eugene Bardak out of Berkeley, um, and I learned about him when I was at, at graduate school for for public administration, and and it's just a it's a simple he calls it a practical guide for policy analysis. Uh, it's a, it's a short read. It's an easy read. There are eight steps that he talks about. Uh, but the beauty of this book is that it is, uh, uh, policy based. Um, but policy doesn't mean that you're restricted to government. I mean, every organization has policies. That's right. Uh, and, and it's this idea about what is it like to, to learn, uh, about others' needs. So a needs based approach, um, and to, to be able to experiment in small steps. Um, truly understand problem framing, which is something I'm quite passionate about. Uh, so, so for all those people that think that in, that uh, innovation is all about brainstorming, uh, I challenge you to consider framestorming as well. Because if you uh, if you're not asking the correct question at the front end, or your problem framing is is uh, is not complete, then you risk sending the the wrong ship from the pier or the wrong train from the station. So, so spending a bit of time on the front end with frame storming is going to pay, pay big dividends. And, and Bardak talks a lot about that. So uh, I'm very grateful for, for having 
uh, included that book into my library. And then um, I'll share a, a, a new book. is uh, uh, It's called Exponential Organizations um, by Salim Ismail, uh, one of the founders of Singularity University. And uh, uh, I will admit I haven't read it yet, but my uh, – <laughs> My, I just received, literally just received it in the mail um, uh, from our CEO. So, so if he's he's passionate about it, I'm sure it's going to be a great read, and I'm really really excited to dive into that one. What are you working on now that you're excited about? This could be you know in your personal life, or it could be at work. Yeah, I'll tell you uh, what gets me most excited right now is is um, we are making a very deliberate uh, decision uh, to position ourselves much more as catalysts uh, within organizations rather than, than just the workshop people. Uh, so, so those that have um, come across a, a Luma uh, experience in the past, uh, we, we probably are, are, are known as, as uh, you know, for providing good workshops. But the reality is, is that there's so much more about going beyond the workshop and being able to teach people uh, to practice human-centered design in the workplace. Um, so this strategic transition from from going from the the workshop people to the workplace people um, is is pretty powerful and something that really excites me. And, and in 2018, the types of relationships that we're building with organizations um, to know that we're going to have uh, an, an enduring uh, effect on them, uh, where where they are able to teach human centered design to their own employees, um, is 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 something that that forms a, a perhaps a, a comprehensive. Uh, strategy um, that that not only it's not just an aspirational goal it's actually something they can execute uh, and so when I start to see these kinds of relations relationships um, come to life uh, and then the types of results that that people are doing because they're trained in our methods uh, that's so exciting to to see because I think you know I, there are some amazing consultancies out there and I value the work that consultancies do but one of my most satisfying moments uh, and I get this asked this from time to time is you know there you were uh, a few years ago pulling people out of the water from a search and rescue helicopter. Like, what? How do you achieve that kind of satisfaction um, when you're when you're when you're throwing sticky notes around a room as opposed to uh, flying a helicopter? And I would say that that one of my favorite examples comes from a, a state agency um, uh, up in Washington that's responsible for helping job seekers. So we, uh, or you know, my colleagues at Luma, we did not come up with a solution for them, but we trained them in Luma's uh, system of innovating for people, such that they came up with a really clever solution. And, and what that looks like is the the pre Luma phase was when uh, a job seeker had requirements. Uh, state state driven requirements where they had to go maybe up to six hours uh, of their day was committed to training and 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 coming up with a a job seeking plan that experience um, has been refined and prototyped and 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 iterated on um, by co-designing with job seekers such that the agency can now deliver what they need to deliver in less than an hour so, so those kinds of stories are what get me excited to to come to work every day. And admittedly, one one day is different from the next. Um, but knowing that that we are equipping people with these skills to make those kinds of meaningful um, improvements in in their their customers' lives or uh, or citizens' lives is 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 really inspiring. And I'm I'm excited to be part of this effort. That's really awesome, man. Uh, I'll say, you know, I, I don't often give plugs or, or testimonials, but what I will say is that I've gone through all different types of training for human-centered design. Uh, it's, it's something that, as you know, Tyson, I'm, I'm passionate about. 
I've taken um, stuff with IIT, with Darden, with MIT, and a few others, and uh, along with Luma. And I can I can tell you that Luma's uh, system of innovation and, and how they go about building capacity for, for organizations and individuals to do this for themselves is matched by no one. And, and for my organization at the Applied Physics Laboratory, I can tell you that in the, I guess it's been over a year now, uh, that we've been teaching Luma and that we've been working with you guys. Um, that's been one of the single biggest drivers of change in our organization um, and building that capacity and really developing our innovation chops, if you will. So um, if 2018, you're looking to, whether as an individual or as an organization, you really want to supercharge your innovation, definitely check out Luma. Definitely, definitely connect with my good friend Tyson. You will not regret it. Tyson, thank you so much. This has been an absolute pleasure. And as always, I come away learning something new every time. Yeah, thank you, Tom. It's been a pleasure to be a part of this effort and uh, keep up the great work. You can connect with Tyson online through his LinkedIn profile page by searching Tyson Weinert. That's spelled W-E-I-N-E-R-T. All the links and resources Tyson and I discussed, including the link to his LinkedIn profile page and the Luma Institute website can be found at the page created just for this episode. You'll find it all at nextyearnowpodcast.com slash 16. And finally, just a reminder, if you like the show and you enjoy learning from our guests like Tyson each week, please consider giving us a rating and review on iTunes. It really helps us stay relevant and findable by listeners like you. That's it for today. I'll see you next time.